Small pieces of the earliest rock fall on the earth every day. How do we find them? And what can they tell us about the makeup of our planet and perhaps how life started on earth? Hi, I'm Jim Green and this is Gravity Assist, NASA's interplanetary talk show. We're going to explore the inside workings of NASA and meet fascinating people who make space missions happen. here with Dr. Neda Abru, and she's a planetary scientist and the senior advisor for science and research at NASA's Langley Research Center. Welcome, Neda, to Gravity Assist. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, and thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, I understand that you've been involved in studying meteorites. What are meteorites? The most simplified way to explain it is rocks from space. Now, um, I think it was Muriel Rukeyser who said that the universe is made out of stories, not of atoms. And if that's the case, then meteorites are some of the most interesting storytellers that you can imagine. Um, they have been in the right places at the right times. And uh, one of the things that really excited me about being able to look at these samples was the ability to piece together these stories of the solar system by understanding what had happened to these rocks. And they rain on us, so <laughs> they make it easy on us to be able to ask those questions and to be able to see how these very small samples sometimes can tell us about very large processes and how they can tell us about things that have happened over periods of time that are incredibly extensive. Well, what originally got you interested in studying meteorites? So I uh, was interested in origins of the solar system for quite a long time. I, as I said, I like stories. And this is in some ways the grandest story that you can probably tell. Well, I grew up in the Venezuelan Andes. Uh, that's very north of South America. And uh, there's some big mountains. And one of the nice things about uh, being high up is there were some uh, very nice um, telescopes. Some of the few um, equatorial latitude telescopes were located in my hometown. So that attracted me to going into astronomy as well. And uh, eventually, I decided to come to the U.S. to continue my studies. So when I was, um, I believe, 17, I came to uh, Minnesota. I went to the University of Minnesota and had a really fantastic opportunity to do my undergraduate in physics and astronomy. And then I realized that I wanted to have something tangible and in some ways being able to have this artifact, this piece of solar system history in my hands, on my desk, being able to go back to the lab all the time and be able to look at these samples. Sometimes I was the first person looking at some of these samples it was extremely exciting. Wow. Well, what kind of meteorites do we know about? There's a variety of uh, different types, but at the largest scale, you can subdivide them in different ways. Uh, one way in which I like to think about them is there's meteorites that come from asteroids. Uh, so those are um, small planet-like 
bodies. Then there's meteorites that come from the moon, and then there's meteorites that come from Mars. Other, like, uh, other people like to think about them in terms of what they're made out of. So some, some of them think about them in terms of uh, meteorites that are mainly made out of metals, uh, the ones that have some metal and some rocky component, silicate component inside of them, and some of them that are mostly uh, rocky silicates. Uh, so there's ways in which you can cut the different types of meteorites depending on how you want to tell the story. Well, how do these meteorites that, that you call metals, how do they form that way? So this is one of those very fascinating things about meteorites, and that is that some of the asteroidal meteorites, the ones that come from these planetesimals, uh, can come from different parts of an asteroid, right? So asteroids are traveling around, that's how we got meteorites here, and they collide with one another. As they collide with one another, they can break up. And sometimes parts of the, that asteroid can be exposed that they normally wouldn't, and that they would normally not be available from very large uh, uh, bodies like the Earth or Mars or the Moon. So we can get pieces from the interior, from the metal-rich core of planets and being able to understand also processes that might be happening in other terrestrial planets. Terrestrial planets are the rocky ones in the inside of the solar system. And we wouldn't be able to get any direct uh, confirmation to our theories and our uh, understanding of the interior of planets. Uh, without having access to the interior of asteroids. So they're very exciting. Well, you know, uh, I have heard that maybe as much as 100 tons of meteoric material fall on the Earth every day. I mean, that sounds like we ought to be able to walk outside our door and pick up a rock and say, hey, this rock came from space. And every once in a while, people can do that. <laughs> yeah, wow. So what are, what should we be looking for? What are those features that make a meteoric rock look so different than the rocks here on Earth? Well, that's one of the hard parts. So in particular for these uh, meteorites that come from the moon or come from Mars, uh, they can be very similar to rocks that are part of our planet. Uh, sometimes even when we are actually looking for meteorites and are out there specifically thinking about uh, wanting to find meteorites, it can be difficult to tell them apart from terrestrial rocks. Uh, however, there is one thing that is very helpful, and that thing is the fusion crust. So before it becomes a meteorite, a rock that is crossing the atmosphere is called a meteor, and it interacts with the terrestrial atmosphere. So what happens is that most of the material that really is in contact with the atmosphere gets ablated. Basically, we lose it due to the interaction between the atmosphere and uh, the meteorite. But there is a thin rind of this darkened material that is called a fusion crust. And it's very thin. You wouldn't be expecting anything that is like an inch thick. It's more like a fingernail thick. 
uh, and it's dark. And in many cases, it can be continuous around the whole sample. So that is one of the ways to tell. It is also possible that some meteorites contain quite a bit of magnetic metal in them. Not every rock that attaches to a magnet is a meteorite, but many meteorites do, uh, <laughs> do uh, attract a magnet. So it's more like accumulating a variety of different characteristics before you can definitely tell whether or not that's a meteorite. So in 2013, one of the most spectacular meteorite falls happened in Russia, in Chelyabinsk. Well, a friend of mine sent me a piece of Chelyabinsk. And what I, what I really enjoy about it, indeed, is that black fusion crust over part of it. And that's, a, as you say, was exposed to the atmosphere. It literally melted the rock. But inside it, when I look, I, I don't see a uniform color. I see different types of of uh, colors uh, uh, in terms of gray and and not so gray and even white. What are those things? So it really depends on the meteorite, right? So uh, in a meteorite that comes from Mars or come from the moon, it would be minerals that are typically found in igneous rocks. Um, when you move to asteroidal uh, meteorites, you can get a variety of other types of minerals. So if you were to look at, for example, some of the these meteorites that contain um, uh, a lot of iron and a lot of nickel, then you would get these iron-nickel alloys. And if you were to actually polish that surface, you would get these incredibly intricate patterns so that would be very different from a meteorite that came from Mars or the moon. And then the asteroidal meteorites that come from bodies that never had that core mantle crust structure will have a very different assortment of minerals as well. So the accumulation of these minerals make up the different colors. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's fascinating when you think about it. But I heard you also have been on a variety of expeditions to look for them. So does that mean you just get into a field and walk across looking for meteorites? In certain parts of the planet, that is actually a possibility. <laughs> and one of the most striking places to do that is Antarctica. Wow, Antarctica. Why, why there? Why there? Well, for one thing, it's easy, right? Um, you have an immense amount of ice and you have black rocks on top of it. In certain parts of the ice, that's all the rocks that you get. So it's extremely easy. You go out, you see something black, that's a meteorite. It's not always that easy to find meteorites in Antarctica, but in the ideal world, <laughs> it is. Uh, so yeah, pretty spectacular place. So what happens then is a group or a team will go down to Antarctica and get into snowmobiles and then cruise across these glaciers looking for the black rocks. So how many expeditions like that have you been on? Just the ones. Uh, and I have to say, uh, can you imagine anything more fun than doing that? <laughs> yeah, riding snowmobiles in the snow looking for meteorites. I, I, I understand that would be a blast. 
How long were you there? And then how many meteorites did you bring back? Oh, my God. We got so extremely lucky in my one season in Antarctica. So altogether, you have to spend some time ahead of time in, in Antarctica in a station called McMurdo, getting ready, getting trained, getting supplies. So that took a couple of weeks. Uh, then we spent, I think it, it was about seven weeks uh, living in tents in the Transantarctic mountains. And then we had to come back and pack everything that we had been used and the meteorites, make sure that everything was safe. So altogether, it, 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 it was a bit over two months. So what happened during that time period for celebrating the holidays? Oh, my goodness. We had such fantastic winter holiday celebrations. We had really good weather. So we were able to have an outdoors December 25th dinner. And we were able to take the covers of the snowmobile. So for the snowmobiles, you get all of these ice drifting towards them. So you don't want for them to accumulate all the, the ice. So you put these covers on top of them. But we were able to repurpose those covers to make a tablecloth. So we had a bunch of buckets, tablecloths from the snowmobile, and we had a little oven. It was a very small oven, but we could use that to make our dinner, to make our turkey. And then we were very excited. We had everything set up for the outdoors uh, part of the dinner, but we forgot that throwing a turkey in the field in Antarctica might be a tad of a challenge. So part of our team just decided we're going to do this. We're going to do this no matter what. So we have this monster thing, try to put it in the oven. There's no way. The turkey is much bigger than the oven. So there had to be a way to take the thing apart. And some of our teammates took a chainsaw to cut the turkey. So I do not know of another Christmas dinner celebration involving a chainsaw um, <laughs> preparation of a turkey. You know, as you were saying this, I was thinking, well, if you're going to defrost the turkey, maybe everybody would have to t take turns holding it, you know, trying to defrost it. But uh, uh, the chainsaw is a much better way. <laughs> And how many meteorites did you find? Do you remember? Yes, uh, we went over the thousand individual samples. Wow, that was a good season. Yeah, yeah. So when we look through our collection and we find perhaps something from Mars and perhaps something from the moon, are we also looking for rocks from Venus or other bodies in the solar system? And do we find them? So there have been some people who have suggested that some rocks that we have in the meteorite collection might come from Mercury. That is a difficult question to answer, right? And one of the obstacles that we run into when we think about how it, a rock from Mercury might have made it into Earth is that the sun is the 10 to the 30 kilogram gorilla in the solar system. And that is a very large gravity well. And getting that rock from 
that interior region of the solar system into Earth would be difficult. Now, there's still some open discussion as to whether some samples might come from Mercury. Venus is not as close to the Sun, but it has its own set of challenges. We actually don't know all that much uh, about what the surface of Venus, the rocky part of Venus, uh, might be like. All we know is that it's extremely hot out in there. So if we think about the process of a collision and breaking a piece of a planetary body, if you think about an impactor coming in and colliding with marshmallow-like surface uh, of Venus, uh, that becomes a bit of a challenge to be able to, um, to get some rocky material out. Well, I also heard that you got involved in, in analyzing some samples from one of the Japanese missions called Hayabusa 2. Uh, did you just get these samples and, and, and what are they like? Well, th this is really quite an amazing opportunity. And I am so incredibly grateful to the Japanese team for letting us uh, being part of something that has taken so much time, so much effort, so much dedication uh, from uh, JAXA and uh, being able to share those samples internationally. But Hayabusa 1 and 2 went to asteroids. So these are the first time that we get samples directly from asteroids. So these missions are the first opportunity that we've ever had to say these samples come from this asteroid and being able to create a bigger story around uh, how they might have formed. So it's, it's an incredible opportunity. Well, they must also be related in a way to perhaps a development of life or providing an environment for which life could have started. What do we know about their relationship to life on Earth? So we are learning more and more as we go. Over the years that I have been involved in, in planetary sciences, we really have learned quite a bit about, first of all, the, the variety of the different organic compounds that, that we can find in meteorites. We have also been able to ask questions about in what environments they could have formed. Some organics, some people theorize that they form in interstellar medium, so interstellar space. Some of them could have formed um, in the asteroids themselves. Uh, one line of thinking is that those asteroids would give us uh, enough of a high temperature and enough water uh, to be able uh, to have those molecules interact with each other, become more complex. And they also give us surfaces in which those reactions can occur. So some of these minerals can act as catalysts for reactions that are happening, allowing for, for the more complex chemistry to occur. How that jump uh, from having amino acids and sugars and hydrocarbons in carbonaceous chondrite goes into um, forming RNA or DNA, that's a big 
gap and we're still trying to understand that that is a very active uh, area of research uh, but it really feels like the more meteorites we get uh, the more variety of different environments that we can trace those uh, meteorites to and now the Hayabusa 2 samples, the Hayabusa samples as well, the more we can understand how this happened. Because obviously the organics came with the rocky stuff. So at some point <laughs> they had to have been able to form this more complex uh, organic chemistry. Right. So before life can get started, you at least have to start out with all the right material. Yeah. Well, you're currently working at NASA's Langley Research Center uh, in Virginia as the senior advocate for science and research. What exactly is that position all about? Well, if you can find a dream job for me, that would be it. My job is basically find the obstacles that keep scientists and researchers in engineering uh, from accomplishing their goals and try to find solutions for those, advocate for solutions for those. So when I was um, thinking about what my next step as a scientist was, uh, I was a professor, um, I was working on my research, it really felt that the most important thing that I could do was to help others. And this is an incredible opportunity to do that. Well, Nada, I always like to ask my guest to tell me what that person, place, or event was that got them so excited about being the scientists they are today. And I call that event a gravity assist. So, Nada, <laughs> what was your gravity assist? Well, I, I had an interesting set of events, actually. Uh, and obviously, I've had a lot of wonderful people who have really contributed to, to my position um, in the sciences, to my interest in the sciences, uh, etc. But if I were to go back in time and go back to that initial moment, there were three events that happened when I was a first grader. And that is when I decided that I wanted to work for NASA. So no pressure there. And... This was 1986, which was a very interesting year from the standpoint of NASA, very difficult year in many ways. So between January and February of 1986, there were three events. One very personal, um, my great-grandmother, who was very old and had a wonderful life, passed, uh, unfortunately. And there was also the terrible tragedy of the Challenger, in early 1986. In the midst of all of these, uh, a comet called Halley was making perihelium. Now, Halley is a fascinating comet. comet. And um, one of the things that makes it really fascinating is that it comes by every 76 years. So when I was thinking about these tragedies, and the loss of life, and the cycle of life. And it was the first time that I thought about these things as a little kid. The idea of having this little piece of the solar system 
come with that regularity and within the cycle of human life really made me think about these big questions and these big cycles. So as humans, we have birth, you grow, uh, you have these adult stages, and then you die. And in some ways, stars do the same. And that was a shock. So it was those cycles. Uh, it was the ability to connect um, with others that have lived maybe thousands of years before me and with people who will live a thousand years into the future. And uh, the stories that we were able to tell. I wanted to learn more about solar systems, how they form, how these little bits of uh, ice and rock travel around and witness all our happy times, sad times, stable times, unstable times, and continue to tell stories about our world. So that's how I got to be a scientist. Oh, wow. From very early on. That's fantastic. Well, Nada, thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look under the hood at NASA and see how we do what we do. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.